This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Revelations 19, through 16. This is found on page 1040 in the Bibles in the back of your pew. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we receive your word as your people. We ask that you would come and breathe upon it. God, would you cause there to be a spirit of revelation? Would you instruct our hearts to long for and look for the day of your coming? God, would you break down every wall of resistance that is in our heart? Would you break down all of the walls of pride, all of the walls of apathy, all of the walls of shame, all of the walls of guilt, all of the walls that we have put up to keep you from our hearts. God, would you come and by your word, remove them and make a way for the word to bear fruit among us. God, would you tear down high places? Would you raise up low places? Would you make a path straight for your word to have its way in us, that there would be fruit, there would be transformation, there would be greater affection for Jesus, there would be love for his name. God, make us a people who look for and long for and wait for and are hope-filled for his coming. God, would you let it provide strength to us And would you allow it, the reality of Jesus's return, would you allow it to wake us up from our slumber, from our slumber, from our sleep? God, give clarity this morning. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus's name. Amen. Amen. So today is the last sermon in our series where we've been looking at the person and work of Jesus And we are going to spend our time this morning looking at the return of our Savior, the return of our King, the time when he will come again and make all things new. So we're going to just jump straight in this morning. The second coming is one of the most important parts of the entire belief system of the early church. I actually really only have one goal and hope for us today. I do want there to be... uh, uh, instruction and uh, illumination as to what the second coming is all about. I do long for there to be a stirring in our hearts to respond to this truth in the way that the New Testament often utilizes it. But more than anything, what I'm actually praying for and hoping for is that you walk away convinced this morning that this reality is front and center to the belief system of the early church. That there is no uh, Christianity, there is no understanding of what it means to follow Jesus separated from a wholehearted belief that he is 
to come again to finish what he started, to fully and finally bring redemption, to fully and finally overcome death and hell, to fully and finally set his people in full glory of their salvation and rule and reign over all creation for all eternity. That is front and center to the New Testament. It gives uh, animation to every single book of the New Testament. And I want you to feel that. I want you to experience that, to be certain of that. It's actually why I gave you way more notes this morning than I normally do, right? The last several pages are just long chunks of the scripture. We're not gonna even just read them all. I just want you to be aware. I want you to kind of be blown back by how much the New Testament talks about this. So for the New Testament church, for Christians throughout the ages, the second coming is meant to be our blessed hope. The blessed hope of every single believer, every follower of Jesus. Look at Titus chapter two, verse 13. Paul says, we are waiting for our blessed hope. There is something in front that is certain to us that is going to bring the full measure of the blessings and the favor of God to all of creation and to his people. What is it? Paul says it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Letter B, yet many believers live with a lot of unfamiliarity related to the truths around the second coming. Oftentimes we believe the lie there's, there's a lie kind of in, in, insidiously sown among the church, I find, that studying the events around the coming of Jesus are difficult and unclear, right? I don't know if you have ever experienced this, but you may think, okay, well, you know, the book of Revelation, it's kind of weird. There's like all these animal beast things and there's uh, trumpets and bowls and there's uh, frogs and these like locust thing that have hair like a woman and teeth like a lion and scorpions, you know, tails. It's, it's, it's a little bit out there, right? And you may, in relating to some of this stuff, think, well, there's, it's unclear, it's uncertain. It's, it's not to be known. And so you don't engage with it, but it leads us to this kind of ambivalence to the truth uh, surrounding the coming of Jesus. However, the expectation of Christ's return is meant to be a pillar of hope for every believer in Jesus. It's meant to give you profound courage to stay the course in the midst of this world and it is meant to situate and orient how we live in this world in obedience to Jesus with a spirit of watchfulness, with a spirit of wisdom as we look for his coming. The certainty of Christ's imminent return stands behind the faith, the obedience and encouragement of every single book of the New Testament. Because of that, it's important for us to familiarize ourselves with the glorious truths related to Christ's coming so that we would be filled with hope and steadfast endurance as we live in this world. So what I wanna do this morning is look at three kind of big buckets. Number one, I wanna look at just the reality of Jesus' coming. What is it? Like, what's the, what's the doctrine itself? The, the certainty of it? Then I wanna talk about, uh, at a real fast clip, as high of an altitude as we can get, what does Jesus do when he comes back? Why does it matter? Like what, what's he actually about doing at his return? And then lastly, I want to take some time and apply it to us in the ways that we see it applied throughout the scriptures. What's, what's it meant to do? Like this isn't just some heady abstract doctrine out there. This is meant to invigorate and propel certain responses from us as God's people. And so I'm gonna look at those this morning. So let's look at the certainty of the second coming. Jesus teaches that he will return in the same manner as how he ascended to the Father. This speaks of the reality that Christ will again come in the flesh to bring complete and total redemption to his creation, right? So Jesus is going to return to the earth again as the God-man, 
Like we've looked at all these doctrines about who Jesus is. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the one who gave himself as a perfect sacrifice. He is the one that's been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God where he lives and reigns right now over all creation. But the New Testament invites us to see and believe that this same man, the one that was born of a virgin, the one that was lived a, a, a sinless life, the one that did great miracles and cast out demons and taught with authority, the one who was crucified, who died and was buried and raised on the third day, this man is coming again to finish everything he started. This is the reality uh, in front of us. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Then there will appear in the, the heavens the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Look at John 14. Jesus says it this way. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And when I've done that, I will come again and take you to myself and I will be with you forever and you will be with me right where I am. Look at Acts chapter one. As Jesus is going into heaven, they're standing around awestruck at the fact that this man that they've walked with who was died, he was buried, he was raised again, he's walked with them for 40 days teaching on the kingdom. He ascends to the father and these angels show up as they're like dumb, dumbfounded, right? They're awestruck that this guy's going into heaven. And these angels show up and they say, look at verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? It's kind of a fascinating question, right? You've just watched someone ascend into heaven? Why are you looking up there? Uh, hello. Did you not just see what happened? But they say to them, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Meaning he will come again as a man to come and finalize and fulfill and consummate all that he started. Let her be at the end of Revelation. This is why I had us read this this morning. John is shown a vision about the return of Jesus and all that will be accomplished by his return, right? So Revelation 19 to 22 starts this portrait of Jesus returning, right? I saw heaven opened and there's a rider on a horse. And the depiction that we saw, this is Jesus returning to make all things new, to accomplish the things we're about to talk about. The rest of these chapters show us the things that he does when he returns. And we, we see this, letter C, don't, don't miss this, the visionary nature of Revelation is meant to give in symbolic form realities, actual concrete realities that are certain in God's heart and in his purposes. When it's all said and done, if you have your Bibles open, I actually want you to flip over there. Look at the last, uh, the second to last sentence of the book of Revelation. It's just a page over from where we were. Jesus, as he has signified meaning through symbolic form, all of these concrete realities that are going to come to pass, Verse 16 in chapter 22, he says, I've sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Look at verse 20. The one that testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. You wanna know the punchline of the book of Revelation? It's those two verses right there. Jesus is saying all of this that I've just shown you, don't get caught up in the symbolism of it. Don't get caught up in trying to nitpick away all of the details. This is the message that I want you to get. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming again. This is certain. And when John hears these words, he gives us what our response is meant to be. Let it be, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If this is what you're about, if this is what you're doing, if this is what's on your heart to do, our response is, yes, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. All right, look at the top of page two. So the doctrine itself is that Jesus will return one day. 
in the flesh to finalize, to fulfill, to consummate all that he has started. So I want to fly over really fast for us this morning. What does Jesus actually do when he comes? Right? What's he, what's he accomplish? I have five fundamental realities that you can't miss here. And these, just so you know, like there's, there's a lot of debate related to the timing of how this is going to happen. And that's like an in-family debate, right? Like it's an in-house debate. Uh, there are lo- uh, Jesus following, Jesus passionate, Jesus loving Christians that believe different things here. I want to get us above that and go, hey, these are five realities that you have to have in front of you. Regardless of how it plays out, you've got to look at these five realities because they're meant to fill you with hope, strengthen you as you walk through this world so you won't waver, and they are meant to cause a response in you. So I want us to look at these five realities. The scope of what Jesus accomplishes at his coming is comprehensive and far-reaching. Many theologians describe the work of Jesus at his return as consummating the redemptive purposes of God. So if in his first coming, he accomplished the work, meaning he paid for it, he purchased the right to fully uh, uh, finalize it, he's done the work, it just has to be fully consummated, fully fulfilled at his second coming. So what is it that will be fully done when he returns? Letter B, this is the first thing. At his return, Jesus will finalize his work of salvation for those who belong to him. Now, I don't know if, this, if, if you catch this when you read the New Testament, but salvation in the Bible is a past reality. It is a present reality and it is a future reality, right? Sometimes the Bible talks about you were saved. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of God's love. That was something that happened. You were saved by the washing of the water of the spirit and the regeneration that came in that moment. You were saved. Sometimes it talks about you like you're in the process of being saved, right? And we all feel that, right? I'm, I'm being formed and conformed and changed in my thoughts, in my affections, in my desires to be conformed into the image of Jesus along the way, right? I'm being saved. And the Bible makes it very clear that you will not be fully saved until Jesus comes again. You will not be fully and wholly saved until you see him. Look at number one here. The work of salvation is broken down. You can take it apart into several categories. You have regeneration, which is the work where at the moment when you expressed faith in Christ, you were by no gift of your own, no work of your own, no uh, effort of your own. You were given the grace by Christ Jesus to be moved from death to life. You were quickened in your soul that you might receive the gift of faith in Christ. You were regenerated. You were born again. You were given that as a gift. You were justified. And that just simply means you were set right before God. You were forgiven of your sins and you were made right in his presence. That was, again, given to you as a gift by grace through faith. We are in the process of being sanctified, which just means being conformed into greater measures of holiness as we pursue Jesus in this life. That that won't be fully and finally accomplished until we see him, right? We are a process of growing in sanctification and holiness. And lastly, we will one day be glorified. At his coming, Jesus will fully and finally sanctify you and glorify you. Look at Romans 8. Those that Jesus predestined, he called. And the ones he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Meaning this is as certain as, as it's already happened. 
you will be, if you are called in Christ and justified in Christ, there is a day in your future, signed, sealed, delivered, stamped, you will be glorified. You will be fully transformed. Salvation is not intended only as a spiritual reality, affecting our minds, our hearts, or our souls. The full measure of salvation contains also a physical reality that touches the whole of our person, our body, our soul, our spirit. Because of this, Jesus will give at his return his followers resurrected bodies that no longer experience the principle or the law of sin in them any longer. This is really good news. Look at Romans chapter seven. Paul outlines this here. He says, I delighted in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law that wages war against the law of my mind. And it brings me under the captivity of law of sin that dwells in me. Wretched man that I am. Paul's going, hey, does anybody else have this struggle? I really want to be wholly devoted to the Lord. I really want to serve him and uh, be formed into his likeness. I long that every single part of me, every thought, every desire, every affection, every choice that I make would line up with his because I see him as beautiful and he is worth all of it. And I find this other thing happening. That when I long for that, there's another principle in me that draws me to a different law, a different way. Who will save me from this, from the body of death? What Paul's getting at here is that there is something in your physical frame because of sin that fights against you and will fight against you until the day you see Jesus face to face. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 here. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to Christ. And he goes on in, later in fit, uh, chapter 15. I tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep, meaning we won't all die. There will be some who are alive when this happens. But every one of us who is in Christ will be changed in one moment, one moment, like the blink of an eye. As fast as you can blink your eye, God will deal with the law of death that is in your body. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet sounds, the dead are raised, and we will be imperishable, changed in a moment. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says it this way. We know that if this tent of ours, this body is destroyed, we have another building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Right now, when we're living in this tent, we're groaning. We're groaning. We long to put on a heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. While we're in this tent, we groan. We're burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. What he's saying is, I don't actually want to live without a body. That's not how I was created. I was created to be body, soul, mind, spirit, fully in line with God's will and God's ways. I long for the day when this thing does not fight against me any longer. I want to be clothed, clothed so that what is mortal in me would be swallowed up in life. Number four, the author of Hebrews declares that at his first coming, Jesus paid the full price to offer forgiveness for sin. But at his return, he will no longer work to accomplish forgiveness. It doesn't need to be done again. He's done the work. What he's doing will fully and finally save those who are his. Look at Hebrews chapter nine. Jesus appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as he, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin because he's already dealt with it, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So Jesus will fully and finally bring salvation to his people 
at his coming. The second thing that Jesus does at his coming is restore all of creation by undoing the effects of sin and ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus liberates creation itself from the bondage of, of, of the curse that has been placed upon it and will bring universal peace and order and harmony and perfect uh, accordance with his purposes. Look at Romans chapter eight. This is what Paul says uh, when he's outlining, relating to the creation. In verse 19, he says, creation is also waiting with eager longing. If you think you're groaning, creation itself is also groaning. It didn't do anything to deserve it. You deserved it. You deserved the reality that sin is at work in us because we chose it. Creation was subjected to futility unwillingly. It was given a curse that it didn't even deserve. And it groans up under the pressure of it in hope. Verse 21, that the creation itself will one day be set free from bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So at Jesus' return, he will bring creation itself to a state of perfection that will be perpetually new. The new creation marked by God's perfect life for all eternity and every effect of sin and every curse will be done away with forever. Look at Revelation 21 here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride for her bridegroom. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The earth will be no more. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The former things have passed away. And he says, behold, I'm making all things new. So the second thing that Jesus does when he comes back, he fully and finally saves his people, but he fully and finally liberates creation itself from the effects of bondage and the curse. Everything works the way that it's supposed to. You see throughout the Old Testament portraits of like wolves and lambs laying down together. Kids putting their hands into the uh, den of adders and not being worried that they're going to get bitten, right? This life of blessing and peace and joy, everything working the way that it's supposed to, Jesus will accomplish this. The third thing he does at his return is destroy death and the devil. Death is the final enemy of God and will be destroyed at the second coming. It's the final statement that the curse has been lifted from the, the, the created order. Jesus defeats death once and for all. First Corinthians 15. This is when it will happen where it comes to pass saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Look at the top of page four. The fourth thing that we see happen here, letter E, is that Jesus will judge the wicked. I want you to just sit with this for a second, though. The reason that I wanted Revelation 19 read and not the end, you know, Revelation 21, we could have heard there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there's going to be peace and life with God, dwelling place. I, I, I find that there are passages in the Bible that we are regular to uh, try to avoid, try to move past, try to not engage with. And this portrait of Jesus in Revelation 19 is one of those. And one of the things that we have to be bold about willing to stand in and engage for, and, and there's a litany of reasons why, but we have to come face to face with the reality 
that one of the primary things that Jesus does when he returns is he judges the wicked. He judges those who have opposed him, who have stood against him, who have uh, continued in their hardness of heart and sinned against him outside of his grace. We see that in Isaiah chapter 63. I won't read that for you, but let's just look at the passage that we read this morning again, right? There's one, John says, sitting on a white horse and his name is faithful and true. Catch this, in righteousness, he judges and makes war, right? He's got a robe dipped in blood and there's a sword coming from his mouth that he's striking down nations and ruling them with a rod of iron and treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now this, this portrait, oftentimes I find from people, they go, I don't, I don't know what I want to do with a God like this, right? I don't know if I want to serve a God like this. Let me just say two things to you that are really important. Number one, I'm trying to think of how I'm going to say this. You will serve a Twitter feed that looks like this. Right? You want, your, you want your Twitter feed to take up causes of justice and uh, put people on display and orient all sorts of anger and rage and vitriol against whatever it is that we deem is unright in the world. Right? We actually want justice. That's a beautiful thing that God has put in us. Now, I think we go about it the absolute, utterly wrong way all the time, all the time, because we want to be the ones that get to de deem what is and isn't outside of righteousness and justice. We want to be the lords and the ones that evaluate that. But we long for justice. We know things aren't the way they should be. We know things are wrong and that something should be done about it. Every two-year-old that has their toy stole knows that justice needs to happen. So we, we actually do orient a lot of our, our lives around filling ourselves with places where we want to see justice enacted. So don't think that we aren't serving something that's trying to accomplish justice for us. That's, that's what I want you to see there. The second thing that I want you to see is there's only one man that we can trust to bring real justice. It's the one who gave of himself sacrificially and literally drained the cup of God's wrath to its dregs. He didn't serve himself. His sight is not clouded by selfishness. It's not clouded by malice. It's not clouded by a personal vendetta. It's not clouded by his own ambition. His sight is fully clean, given over as a perfect sacrifice. So we can trust that he knows how to bring justice. The faithful one, the true one in righteousness. It's perfectly right, perfectly just, never ever outside of what is good and whole and right. In justice, he makes war and judges. But this will happen. Jesus will deal with wickedness. The last thing we see is that Jesus will sit enthroned for all eternity as the rightful king over all creation. This is Isaiah chapter nine. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward forever and forevermore. So these, these realities are like the fundamentals of 
looking at the return of Jesus. So what does that mean? Right, like why, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we actually put these in front of our face, that we believe these, that we uh, seek to be emboldened by them, to be shaped by them, for these to find their way into our thinking and our prayers and how we live in the world? Uh, I, there's, there's a few things that I think these do. Throughout the New Testament, the doctrine of the second coming is always intended to produce something in those who follow Christ. Every time, every time, every time that the writers of the New Testament bring up Jesus' return, it is to do something for those that put their faith in Jesus. It's meant to produce something. It isn't meant to be relegated to some, like uh, just trying to find the timing of events, right? Like getting your charts right and, and having the big like timeline. That's not what it's about. Although there is value in studying this with rigor. It's not meant to be left unengaged because we're afraid or we're, uh, we feel like we're gonna be confused or it's too difficult for us. For the New Testament church, the second coming of Jesus produced real concrete realities in our lives as we follow him in the world. Let me give you just three. And I really am gonna have to fly through these. Sorry about that. I'm gonna spend time on one of them. Fly through the first two. The first thing that it's meant to do, the second coming is meant to fill you with hope. Fill you with hope. Hey, let me just give a quick like exhortation, encouragement. If you're struggling with despair in your life, and despair is this, despair is simply the belief that nothing is ever going to change, that everything is always going to remain the same, that there is no hope, right? If you're struggling with despair, take these passages, take these realities, and begin to ask God by his spirit to make you certain of them. These are meant to fill you with hope that things are not always going to be the way they are. Things are not just going to stay the same. Your present reality is not the way that it's always going to be. This is meant to invigorate you with hope so that you have certainty to look forward to the glorious reality of what God is going to do. The realities of the end times or the realities of the coming of Jesus are meant to Look at Philippians 1. This is how Paul situates it. I am certain of something. I am certain of this. The one that began a good work is going to complete it. And when does he say he's going to complete it? The day of Jesus Christ. That's the day he returns. The day of Jesus in the New Testament is the day when he comes to make all things new and to finish what he started. Paul's saying, I know something to be true. The one that started it isn't going to leave it half done. He's not going to just let it go to the wayside. He's not going to uh, uh, fail in bringing it to pass just like he promised he would. Hey, if you need hope, begin to look at these realities that Jesus will fully and finally save that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Start to take those realities, chew on them in your heart and mind and ask God by his Holy Spirit to convince you. It takes him to be convinced. He has to do the work. Ask him to do the work. Ask him to convince you of these realities and to fill you with hope. This is what Paul prays in Romans 15, 13. I don't have it on the notes for you. But he says, I'm praying that the God of hope would give you peace and joy while you believe so that you'll be strengthened in hope, that you would have hope. The spirit has to do that in you. The second thing that this does all over the place in the New Testament, it fills us with certainty. It fills us with hope that God is going to finish what he started. The second coming also strengthens us to walk with patient endurance as we walk through the trials of this world, right? Again, we have hope, but we also have strength to take the next step because we're 
growing in certainty that this is not how it's all going to be. There is a purpose or a meaning to this. I was, I was telling somebody this week, and this is, this is why meditating on eternity, meditating on the return of Christ actually matters. I was talking with somebody this week about a, a place of difficulty that they're experiencing in their life. And they're walking through and they're going, you know, I have friends around me who are saying things like, uh, you just need more faith here, right? You need more faith. You need to believe more and, and God's goodness would touch you in this spot. But I don't know, maybe, maybe this is like the Lord like trying to do something in me. Maybe, maybe this is like spiritual attack and maybe, you know, and I said, maybe those things aren't always like uh, uh, separate from each other. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that God uses means to get us really weak. But I said to them, I go, hey, here's what I want you to remember. And I think we need to remember. We only get to do by faith once. Right? Why when God saved you, did he not save you, save you, and fully save you. Why didn't he? He could have. He can do anything he wants. He has all power. Why did he not glorify you day one, sanctify you day one? That, that besetting sin that you struggle with just gone right then. That sickness in your body that you deal with all the time, why is it not gone right then? He could do it and he loves to do it. And his desire is that in his kingdom, all those things would be restored and fully brought to peace and life forever. Why? Why? Because we get to do it through a mirror dimly one time. One time. One time do we get to walk through this world by faith and not by sight, which makes me think that the by faith season really matters really matters to the Lord, really, really matters. I think in ways that until we see him face to face, we won't even begin to comprehend how much it mattered that as we're walking through hardship and difficulty and struggling against sin and struggling to walk in obedience, struggling to remember his truth in the midst of pain and hardship and difficulty, that we'll stand in his presence and he'll go, I saw every one of them. I saw every one of them and they really matter to me. They really matter to me. Now, you never have to deal with that again. You never have to, by faith again, you just get to by sight forever. What a glorious day that will be. But looking at that day and its certainty gives us courage and strength to take the step in the by faith moment when it's hard and difficult and we can't see and it's cloudy and it... it requires so much strength there. He fills us with strength. This is what we see all over the place. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. We don't lose heart. And Paul's talking about walking through some hard stuff. And he's about to tell you walking through really, really hard stuff later in 2 Corinthians, where he's going, I've been beaten, wild beasts, night and day in the deep. We've walked through hardship. Everywhere we go, we're persecuted and afflicted. He goes, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day. This is a light and a momentary affliction, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look to the things that are, not, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Looking at these realities is meant to strengthen you as you walk through the hard, difficult, outward self-wasting away reality of this life. All right, the last thing that the second coming gives to us or looking at the second coming does, and this is by far, by far the most pastoral application of the second coming. I mean, far and away. Yes, the New Testament wants to go, it fills you with hope. Yes, it gives you strength to take another step, you know, today in the midst of the by faith moment. But the primary motivation that we have in this world to keep awake 
and stay sober in the face of the alluring power and the love of this world and the face of deception is fixating our gaze on the second coming. The primary pastoral application of the second coming in the New Testament is watch out, wake up. Do not get lulled to sleep by the love of this world, by the cares of this life, by the things and the desire for other things that would so easily entangle your soul and choke out the life of God in you. He's coming. It is sure he is coming. It is sure he's going to do these things. It is sure because of that. Do not live like this world is yours. Do not live like this is your home. Live like you're a pilgrim, a stranger, a sojourner, one that has to stay awake and alert because everything about this world is trying to lull you to sleep and get you to be clouded in the ways that you see things and think about things and live in this, in this world. It's an exhortation to watch and to be awake. I want you to just hear some of these. I actually want you to feel really overwhelmed by this. Not in a bad way, but in a, there's a lot. Jesus exhorts his disciples to watch in the reality of his second coming. Look at Matthew 24, verse 36. Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. As in the days of Noah, so will it be when the son of man comes. In those days before the flood, men were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Everything was going on good. Everybody was doing what they were doing, living their best life now. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware, the flood came, swept them away. So it will be at this coming of the son of man. Therefore, stay awake, stay awake. Don't get lulled to sleep. Don't get dulled in your senses as to what's really going on here. Do not drink the heady wine. Stay awake. Stay awake. You must be ready. Look at Luke chapter 21. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your hearts because your redemption is drawing nigh. Watch yourselves lest you be weighed down with dissipation with drunkenness or with the cares of this life, just weighing you down. And this day comes upon you like a trap. Stay awake at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape these things. Paul orients watchfulness, obedience, and sobriety to the reality of Christ's second coming. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake up Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We're closer today than we were yesterday. Hey, what does that mean? Wake up. Wake up. The hour is come. Don't go on living like we're in the night anymore. Don't live like we're, we're under this stupor or this lullaby that would keep us asleep. Cast off the works of darkness Put on the armor of light. Walk like children of the daytime. Not in orgies, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality. Don't give yourselves to quarreling or jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take him and put him on. Put his mind on. Put his affections on. Put his desires on. Take him and put him on. And don't give any wiggle room for your flesh. Paul would say earlier in Romans chapter six, hey, because you've been baptized, you went down in the water. You were buried with Jesus in his death and you came up to walk in the newness of life. Because you did that, take your members, your body, your hands, your mind, your eyes, your tongue, your whole being, present it to God as alive from the dead. Here I am, God. I'm yours. Every part of me belongs to you. Put yourself onto me. Don't give my flesh one inch, one inch, one inch in this world. Give me yourself. Don't gratify its desires. 
Paul would say. Look at the top of page six. I'm just going to go a couple more. 2 Timothy 4. Fourth one down. Paul giving a charge to his son in the Lord. I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, his kingdom. Hey, Timothy, fulfill your ministry in the world. People of God, stay the course. What gives us motivation to stay the course? Look at the day when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing of his kingdom. Do these things. Preach the word. Be ready in season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because there's days coming when people won't endure sound teaching. They have tickling ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What should we do then? Always be sober-minded. What's the response? God, I don't, want, I don't want to have itching ears that go and find people to tell me what I already want to hear. I don't want to go just find people to like sugarcoat something and make me feel good about the places I was already wanting to compromise or draw back. I don't want to do that. Stay sober, sober-minded. Be sober-minded, the Lord would say. Finally, the apostle Peter says this all over the place. He demonstrates that obedience and sobriety are the only responses to the truth of Jesus's returns. Return. First Peter 1, put on a mind ready for action. Be sober-minded. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Look at the last one here, 2 Peter 3. Knowing this, I want you to know something. This, were, this is part of the reason we're preaching 2 Peter here in a little bit. Scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing. They follow their own sinful desires. They say, he's never coming. Right, everything's happening just like it always has. Every generation of believers thought that Jesus was coming back. It's not actually going to happen ever since the fathers fell asleep. These things continue just like they have been. He goes on and he tells them that this is not proper thinking. Look at verse eight. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. Friends, don't look, overlook this. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day, meaning God's timing is not like yours. So when God says, I'm coming quickly, don't get lulled into this idea that you know exactly how it's going to happen. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise like you would count slowness. You would think he's being slow, but is patient, not wishing that any would perish, but all would reach repentance. However, don't get lulled into the scoffing spirit. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and its works will be, that are done on it will be exposed. This is where I want us to respond this morning. Since all of these things are true, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away. But according to his promise, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. The call all over the New Testament, when we look at the reality of the second coming is, what type of people are we to be? Living with holiness, godliness, the fear of the Lord, waiting for, meaning we put our hope in and we expect that it's happening 
and hastening, meaning that we look toward it and run after it and live as though it is certain. There's something that Peter says here that it's like, it's like a hastening, it's like a leavening, it's actually uh, speeding it up as we look to him with lives of holiness and obedience. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond. Would you stand? respond to the Lord here in a minute. Uh, what we'll do, I'm going to pray over us for a little bit, uh, and then we'll respond by coming to the table this morning. We'll sing, and as we do every single week, we have people in the room that would love to pray with you, pray for you. If there's things in your heart or in your soul that are being stirred up, and you want someone to stand with you and ask the Lord to meet you there, to, uh, to um, speak to you, to give you strength, to fill you with hope, we would love to uh, stand with you and pray for you. Uh, but the way that we take communion at Redeemer, we believe that this meal is open to any and all who look to Jesus and Jesus alone for their righteousness and salvation. So if you put your faith in him this morning, come and take this meal with us. The way we take the meal at Redeemer is we tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up in the front, the middle, both sides of the balcony, and a gluten-free uh, station to my right over here. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, if you, if you have not trusted in him for your life, your righteousness, your peace before God, we're really glad you're here with us this morning. We want to ask that you not come and take this meal with us, though. This meal is a in, in a similar way to baptism, it is a signifier of a reality. This meal doesn't do anything uh, before God on your behalf. Only Jesus does. Only Jesus does. So if you aren't looking to what this meal signifies, this meal doesn't do anything for you. And so we, we actually wanted this to be a place where you don't have to perform. You don't have to like do a religious ri ritual to belong here. Uh, we, we, we invite you to stay in your seat, to, to be there. We're really glad you're here. But for those who are trusting in Jesus, we're gonna come and take communion here in a moment. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll respond in those ways. God, we love you this morning and we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made a way for us in Christ Jesus by the broken body in the shed blood of our Savior. God, and we thank you that the same body that was broken on the tree was raised on the third day, is ascended to the right hand of God, and one day will come again, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await for you. And we get to practice this meal. I love that Paul situates this meal in light of the second coming. He says, we, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes back. So this morning, we're, we're, we're proclaiming that we're waiting for full and final redemption. God, would you come and minister among us? Holy Spirit, would you move in our midst? God, I ask for those in this room that need to be strengthened by hope this morning. God of hope, would you come and give strength? Would you uh, push back the power of despair in our midst? Would you cause us to be situated and rooted in the reality of Christ's coming, that it is accomplished and that he is surely coming quickly? God, for those that need strength in the midst of the uh, walking through this life by faith, I ask that you would put strength into their hearts and minds today by the Holy Spirit. God, and for all of us, every one of us, I ask that you would help us awaken, awaken from slumber. God, would you show us the places where we are listening to 
a lullaby that would put us to sleep. God, where we are loving the cares of this life, where we are imbibing in the things of this world to our own detriment, God, would you come and reveal those to us? Would you give us strength to respond to you this morning? To give those to you as as an offering. God, here we are. We present our members to you as alive from the dead. Come and fill us with grace and strength for your glory and in your name. Amen.